0: Welcome to the Leaders Team Podcast, made for school leaders by school leaders.
1: Welcome to Leaders Podcast. Today we're joined by Performance Learning founder, Ted Shimani, an EdTech pioneer who's worked in partnership with educators across a wide range of settings, including primary, secondary, prison service and Eton College, to improve outcomes for all learners through cutting edge technology and personalised learning. Ted, welcome and thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to have you here with us. And we're really looking forward to learning a little bit more about how performance learning can support leaders to solve some of the big issues and questions facing educators in the current education climate. So welcome.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. Lovely to be here and talk to you.
1: Um, And first of all, um, can you just tell us a little bit more about your own journey? So specifically, how your own school experiences actually inspired the (laughs) development of the performance learning um, model?
0: Definitely. So, growing up, I had an incredibly challenging time in school. Uh, I was, the politically correct way of putting it, is I had a wonderful opportunity to see the inside of three schools by the time I was fifteen. So it was it was disrupted partly purely just because I had a very difficult time in in learning. And often, and this was the basis of my journey, that um, often I struggle with the what, but I didn't have anyone show me how. And that, to cut a long story short, following a career as a professional tennis player, where I was exposed to just a, a high level of input from various tennis coaches spanning three countries and a career which lasted about five years, I went from being incredibly difficult, child apparently to manage in school to competing at a very high level uh, on the tennis circuit obviously not high enough at the time i was 16 roger federal won wimbledon and i thought okay i'm a little bit further off so let's have a pivot and think about what else i could do to really um give back to students like me who i you know i felt at the time just weren't given that opportunity to really express how they felt in school and very quickly got sort of pigeonholed into a set system that I didn't feel yeah, I can articulate that now. At the time, I kept um, spending most of my time outside the classroom and in the classroom, you can read the lines around that, um, of showing me how to learn, assessing my strengths, my areas of improvement, like I got access and exposed to as a, as a tennis player on the circuit. And that's why I set up Performance Learning, which now um, has been, we're heading into our 12th year next year. Uh, I conducted seven years of, of uh, research, which I'm, next week is the uh, Viva examination for, for my thesis that I've written to Nick Wednesday. And the whole focus of it was really to uncover what the most sustainable and transferable way to uplift people performance would be. And as a skills-based approach, more sustainable. And here we are today. So yes, as you said, um, incredibly proud. Sometimes I have to pinch myself, though it's been a hard graft over the last 12 years. To be able to deploy performance learning, our assessments and our learning uh, technology and our regulated qualification into, as I said, from from prison straight away through to private schools to really try and help create a level playing field.
1: Yeah, just listening to your journey there, you've had a remarkable kind of insight, I think, into quite a, ro- a wide range of settings. So, based on that experience, what would you say are the key challenges that's facing all ed- educators at the moment, both nationally and internationally?
0: So I think there are many challenges uh, outside of just pure teaching and learning, but second domain that we're talking about. Um, one is delivering a personalized approach to every pupil on scale is is very difficult. Two, I think the rhetoric now, we, we say post-COVID, but it seems to be a reality now that that's that, that we have to live with around the notion of making sure that the pupil's mental health their attitudes and, and their behaviours towards their learning, their complex progress and attainment factors are all part of that learning journey alongside teaching them English, math, science and various other subjects, history, geographies that they have to learn. And I think it's an exciting challenge, but nevertheless a, a challenge. So really getting to a point where we can deliver a, a, a personalised approach which places the... and I I would say this has been an obsession of mine over the last decade plus now, that really places the the attitudes and behaviours, the mental health and well-being of that people at the forefront of their academic journey now, I think is no longer a matter of choice, but a matter of of necessity now. For a number of reasons, if we're going to compete globally in the next 10 to 15 years uh, and really create um, that academic genius that I feel every student has within them that just needs to be kind of extracted out, through careful, deliberate assessment, continuous assessment, but really focusing on how they learn um, and placing equal importance on, on, on that as we've done on what they learn.
1: Brilliant, that's really, really interesting. And I think for leaders who might not have had the same insight as you, what do you think mainstream settings could learn at the moment from alternative provisions and sort of prison schools that are kind of facing different challenges that particularly link to that, that element of behaviour for learning?
0: It's a great question, because I think the more extreme the environment is, the higher the need to be able to really assess and learn about the individual you're coaching or teaching or intervening with. And that's a natural process. If you take um, a category C, prison dealing with young offenders, uh, which we have got quite a bit of experience in now through the technology, assessing very early on who they are, how they learn, what behaviors are driving uh, what behaviours are driving, what beliefs are driving them, is is not the luxury. I mean, we talk you know, we, we talk to a lot of schools on a daily basis, and we're still trying to break this notion that this is a nice to have. Yet, um, most literature now, uh, and I quote one of my my you know most favourite um, researchers, a uh, lady named mm-hmm. Helen mordino Yang. Uh, in essence came with gr- the groundbreaking approach that faced a lot of my research um, that I've tried to advance is, you know, we feel, therefore we learn. Um, and it's neurobiologically impossible to learn effectively, let alone sustain that learning and transfer that learning, unless we're really engaged with the learning process. So, very, you know, I, I could talk for hours on this, but I'm conscious we've got a limited time today bottom line the extreme environments that we're exposed to and extreme can mean two ends extreme risk i.e a prison who's tasked with reducing reoffending rates versus uh, a very very high performing establishment getting to know how they learn i've seen this an incredibly important part of the the, the modus operandi of how they shape that individual's learning journey it's the bit in the middle that I feel could be improved. So if we look at assessment as a whole and really shaping the discussion around, yes, it's important to have literacy assessments, numeracy assessments, of course is. They've been around since, yeah. since the dawn of time, but equally we can no longer ignore the importance of pre-assessing skills, behaviors, emotions and perceptions. And what my research has has proven is statistically that results in improvements in results. And it does so in a faster, more sustainable, more transferable fashion. And dare I say, makes it a lot more enjoyable for the learning process. Because fundamentally, we have this, right, as adults, that the older we get, the more we actually enjoy learning. Imagine... A disadvantaged student sitting in school today in a, in a mainstream secondary school who's just not engaging in math. Imagine if we could not only accelerate their performance by finding out how they're learning and their learning process, but they actually enjoy doing so. So I think it's a combination of both um, that that is key now and no longer a, a nice to have but a must. If we're going to increase engagement, increase skill sets, and really um, build that competitive landscape over the next five to ten years.
1: Brilliant, thank you. And in terms of like increasing engagement, um, what do you think um, schools can actually learn from the private sector on this? Is there kind of like a magic magic formula from sort of private schools, independent schools, that you would like to see sort of coming into this holistic model um, of learning?
0: I think contextually, um, it's it's a tough one because you've got, and I, I, I'm I, I'm in love with I'm in love with our state system. I, I think that we've really there's always areas of improvements there's always areas where we need to you know where we need to place more resources and less resources but I think it, the question really is is first what what do both of them do really well and that's just the care and compassion they have for their pupils uh, f- fundamentally number two uh, I think this and I keep talking about this I think creating space and time um, in both the state and the private sector you know, in private schools to be able to just at the, the start of each term pre-assess and identify these three areas that i keep talking about skills behaviors and perceptions is is vital to be able to then provide what uh, has been the debate you know for the last 150 years which is the differences between the state education and private education what I'm really trying to do is say, well, that's not the question. But yes, of course there are differences. That's you know it, it, that's the obvious. We don't need to keep debating um, the differences. How do we create more of a level playing field for those who uh, are not necessarily exposed to private education or want to be exposed to private education? You're talking to you're talking to a former child who had all three, right? So I've managed to dip my toe in all three environments, and I want to move the conversation away from. You know, what they do differently, what they could borrow from each other, and, and ask the question of, of how do we create a level playing field where the even though the context is separate, the content, if I could call it that, is the same. And the unification, the democratization, whichever, you know, however, which way you want to call it, leveling up. Um, it have been listening to the news too much over the last five years. I'm now even saying leveling up, but really the definition of leveling up is fundamentally irrespective, and I've seen this in uh, whether it's uh, an inner-city state school, a state school, rural area, postal area, whether it's a private school, whether it's a primary recently prison. I, I, the common ground of all of this is there's a set of skills, there's a set of behaviours, and there's a set of perceptions that that human has as an individual that can be shaped either negatively or positively. And to me, the question is, How can we scale that? Because if we can, then uh, we'll begin to close this ever widening tail that often we're seeing. And that tail exists in both environments, not just state, not just private.
1: Brilliant. So, so, like getting to the sort of like the crux of what what you're saying here in terms of performance learning, um, you're saying the key to success for all learners, regardless of context, is this development of a holistic sort of approach, which involves teaching the skills and behaviours and the culture as part of the curriculum. Why do you think that's so important for schools to adopt that approach, particularly at, at this particular moment in time?
0: Yeah. So, I, I think. A, a, look, a, num- a number of reasons, but, but fundamentally, I go back to the two, you know, I go back to kind of three key pillars over here, engagement, sustainability, and transferability, that we've seen a lot of the engagement challenges. And I was the same. It was give me an area of a trapezium or an algebraic equation to solve, and I'm out of the door, right? Forget it. It wouldn't happen, and then I would disrupt. So engagement was an issue for me. So finding out their process of learning, Uh, their their perceptions of, of receiving that information around their subject demands, around their readiness to learn, around their perceptions towards teachers in the beginning, and then being able to say, here are your strengths, here are your areas of improvement on how you learn. Then the what becomes significantly easier. So, and there's no teacher on the planet that... I have met and come across uh, and I've had the privilege of training tens of thousands of teachers now through performance learning that will disagree with the notion that um, that light bulb moment the student gets when they're teaching in the classroom and all of a sudden it's missed, I got it, sir, I got it. That's why we get up out of bed. Well, how do we do more of those? How can we accelerate that? Because that's the joy and the essence of both teaching and learning. And that's why I fundamentally believe that identifying these three areas uh, not only increases engagement because they're just going to get better. And often I ask students this question is, if you good at the subjects you enjoy, do you enjoy the subject you're good at? No one likes enjoying things they're not good at. We mature and learn to do things we are not good as, a, as adults, but um, I've not met a 15-year-old, let alone a 10-year-old, or a 5-year-old who loves being stressed out because they can't handle demands that are in front of them because the information is too high. So that solves the engagement problem. Big statement I've just made. Helps solve the engagement problem. Contributes to solving engagement. I probably got there again. Um, it's a very raw, uncut episode that we're doing right now. So. And then number two is we're then looking at sustainability. Well, you've learned a set of skills that within the transition years, going from year six, seven, eight, nine, you can then use to help you get ahead by the time you're in year 10 so your GCSE is ready two years early. Or in year nine, as an example, and then finally the transferability. I have an A level student who then is looking at workplace readiness, and this is a big discussion um, within within FE, which we do a lot of work, and within the prison sectors. How do we get ready for work? Work is skills based, and I have a belief that you can teach anyone anything at any time. So therefore, that's then the trifactor, which is upskilling for sustainability so that they can learn those skills, learn how to learn, get to know how they learn so that they can transfer that right into the workplace. And the wonderful thing with all of this, and this is the misconception, and I think it is a misconception, the assessment part is the complex bit. But the learner themselves, when asked an appropriate set of questions through an appropriate vehicle, is incredibly honest with how they feel. And that data point, that metric, I think we need to factor in a lot more of. There's a lot of mainstream discussion on capturing people' voice, capturing learner voice. That can't just be a feel-good exercise. It can't just be a nice to have. It can't be a tick in the box. Use that data to be able to make effective teaching and learning decisions from, because that that's the individual you're trying to trying to influence. So, yeah, engagement, sustainability and transferability. They're the big three that we're seeing.
1: So you started touching on there, the notion of kind of like data. So in terms of assessment, what mm-hmm. data does performance for learning actually provide to school leaders and how could that improve outcomes?
0: OK, so in essence, a, a quick 20 minute assessment for, 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 for students. And we also invite teachers to do these assessments as well, or mentors or tutors, uh, gives us a unique profile on how that individual learns. Very descriptive. Number two, it highlights four critical areas of skill. How they manage their time, their sleep and their well-being and their energy levels, their ability to diffuse stress and anxiety towards tests and exam. We all remember a time when we opened an exam paper and blanked out or got to the end of the an exam and everything started to come back. And the big one for me, which has been really the 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 if you said to me what's the one thing you could do to just transform performance instantly. It's being able to really improve retention skills, structuring skills, application skills. So it gives you an overview, a very detailed overview on where those gaps are. And then number three, which I found our schools have found really useful, is this whole notion of perceptions and the year group comparisons, the cohort comparisons around, we look at eight key areas uh, of perceptions. And I won't mention all eight, but to give you a few, around how they perceive themselves, their readiness and their eagerness to learn, so their engagement, their motivation, these very grey areas we've managed to make very black and white. The big one that's come up a lot is perceptions towards subject demands, and often what gets confused in a lot of our schools, because there's no data to to, to base any of these decisions from, is, is it a mental health problem? Is it an engagement problem? Is it a motivation problem? And more often than not, it's overwhelm, that's been compounded over years because of their inability to meet the demands of the curriculum. And we can pinpoint exactly what they need to do, how much they need to do, what outcomes they're going to get. And most importantly, what they don't need to focus on because they're doing really well. That's pillar one. That's our foresight assessments. And then we've got a personalized learning platform. So whatever they've said in the assessment, there's coaching. So if they said, I get to Friday and I'm falling asleep at my desk, I can't remember my science very well. I'm struggling in my math because I just forget formulas. It gives them coaching to be able to do online. And then finally, something I love to do is I teach in 20 of our schools a year, 20 to 25 of our schools a year. So we run targeted coaching programs for the most hard to reach students. So it's pretty much end to end. And we correlate that to direct improvements in exam results. and
1: Really, really interesting findings, sort of coming out of that. Um, flipping that back to some of the big, bigger issues in education at the moment that I know school yeah. leaders are gonna be thinking about. So in the UK at the moment, uh, we're thinking about how do we tackle the attendance crisis? What can we do for behavior right. for learning? And how can we yeah. tackle the attainment gap regionally for disadvantaged students? What do you think are the key solutions for these challenges? Do you think performance for learning right. kind of offers anything in these key areas?
0: Yeah, so performance learning does. Um, so you've asked me three examples there so we're just going to break down that into three questions. So if we look at um, the latter one where you're looking at the attainment gap uh, I think for me you know i I can't say 100 percent so I'll say 110 uh, percent the the attainment gap fundamentally comes down to assessing the skills gap, coaching to improve the skills gap and making sure that that's sustainable. So attainment gaps, fundamentally for me, yes, there are environmental factors, there are, as you've mentioned, uh, attendance factors at play, which often are outside of the control of the environment they're learning, whichever the environment is. But the bit that we can control, and performance learning's done this now, year in, year out, across multi-environments, is that notion of sustainability and transferability. If you can teach, the most disadvantaged, how to learn in a skills driven approach, those four areas I focused on before. I can only speak for our own examples, um, but my research is based on that. So the the actual thesis I put together is based on about 10,500 students across a seven year period with this approach. And the results are correlating to improvements in test results and exam results of which the majority of that population were low and moderate prioritating students of which the majority of them were pupil premium students. So to me, I'm very, very clear on this question around how to solve the attainment gap. It's show me how to learn, show me the skills that I'm lacking and help me to start, feeling like I'm winning again in the subjects that I just cannot engage with. That's one. In terms of the uh, attendance, it, it's it, this is a sort of, it's it's double-edged, because obviously, you know, we've got um, pupils who, and I think we have some of the most resilient pupils on the planet um, in the UK, because irrespective of what they go through at home and the challenges they face and the hardships they face, they all turn up. Even if it's at 30 40%, they're still trying to turn up. And to me, attainment and engagement sit side by side. If I feel like I'm winning in my subjects, if I feel like I'm winning in school, if I feel like school's right for me, I'm going to turn up. So to me, again, it's the same analogy of an athlete who's 500 in the world and wants to give up. That athlete won't want to give up if that athlete's 50 in the one. So it's a very single-minded solution to say, how do we improve results so that they feel learning is right for them and they can learn. And again, I'll bring it back down to and you get bored of me saying the same thing over and over again, is show me how I can improve my skills, show me how I can improve my behavior, and show me how I can develop a healthier perception of my of my attitudes toward learning. So that's prime factor for me. And and you start getting a, a sort of a domino effect across these areas. The country's currently currently facing challenges.
1: Yeah, and I think it is really important when thinking about self-esteem and that engagement model and kind of how it can boost that. And and I think the reason I asked that question, not not separately, mm. but that I think they are interwoven, like you summarised right. there. So thank you for that one, Tedge. Um, final question. Um, at the moment, obviously technology, AIs. There's a lot of talk going on around this nationally at the moment, and your performance learning module utilises digital technology. What do you think the key advantages are of using digital technology as part of wider strategies for leaders, educators, parents, and students?
0: Yeah. Scale, cost, time savings when used properly. So they're the three fundamentally. I mean, what technology enables us to do is save time, do things faster um, and do things on scale. So they've, they've always been the three and that's why I wanted to, intentionally develop the assessments to be digitized so that we can just affect the more, have the machine do the modeling and do it on scale and deliver it at a cost which is a fraction of having a team of 50 trained ed sites go into a school and do it, right? And processing and speed, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, we know that. I think an important question that needs to really be framed um a lot more than it is is what technology won't do. And I think there's a rhetoric forming around technology being the, the silver bullet in education. And while it can provide silver bullets in certain contexts, a good 80% of my work over the last 10 years has been with disadvantaged students. Um, with students who have come from challenging backgrounds where attendance a lot of the time has been sub 40%, where they're on the way out and the environments that they're in are not helping them engage in school. So what do you do? Technology can help highlight areas, but it certainly can't, for me, and I I feel quite strongly around this, ever, ever replace that that moment that you get from your favorite teacher when they've said something and that light bulb has just clicked. So I think it's really important to use technology for technology's purpose and not, and have a very clear line on what it will struggle to do. I'm not saying forever, but for now. So the focus must be on um, my biggest concern in education today is is, is the need for more um, teachers. Uh, there was a report I can't, I can't remember stats and he was a report yesterday around the, the millions of teachers needed um, by when at a certain point in time. Uh, I think we need to be focusing on that because that's the potential iceberg. So I'm clear on it. If it can be used, as I said, for those, for those, for those metrics that I mentioned, but specifically, uh, I think more investment in teacher training, more investment into teachers, more investment in classrooms, more investment. We have some schools that still struggle with internet connectivity and broadband to even access some of the basics. So I think as a country, yes, it's exciting. There's a lot of technology now available. I think the onset of machine learning and also intelligence will provide breakthroughs. It is providing breakthroughs. We've been able to, to, to build something of, of that nature to provide breakthroughs. But we can't lose sight of the fact that that learning process fundamentally is in direct proportion to the relationship she has with the learning process and the feedback cycle they have with their teachers, which is the humans and human interaction. Very long answer. My solution is a blended approach. That's been the most effective. That's been my research over the last decade, which is use it in a blended fashion.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Terry. Some really important points there, I think, about that human element. And I think that's why we're all in education. It is for that human interaction. And it is the difference a teacher can make. So absolutely fantastic thing, I think, to to end the interview there um, on today. So thank you very much for joining us and sort of sharing your views. So many, so many interesting takeaways there to sort of go away and think about. So thank you. It's been fantastic having you. And please come and talk to us again soon about the findings from your dissertation, which also sounds incredibly interesting. So thank you, Terry. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Leaders Podcast. Join us again for more SLT and subject leadership conversations and follow Twinkle SLT and Twinkle Subject Leads on our socials.